ನಮೋ ತಸ ಭಗವತೋ ಅರ್ಹ So I wish to express my appreciation for the your attendance on this auspicious day of the Katina at Amravati 2021 especially to to the is Highness the Rama the 10th the king of Thailand who sponsored this Katina along with those lay people the Sunday group who have joined in with the ambassador Pitanu and his wife and the staff from the embassy all assembled together here to provide these requisites which is a tradition coming from the time of the Buddha 2564 years ago to the present moment that we're experiencing here and now so it's been many years since uh, this we first came to amravati in 1984 and uh, it was all these building 22 kind of barrack like hut buildings that were up for sale by the it was owned by the bedford county and it had been a school for children who couldn't learn in the ordinary schools in bedford for people with students with dyslexia and and unable to learn in the, in the ordinary ways so it's it has a good past it was as far as i know a very good school and then the government selling it off we the english sangha trust purchased it to provide opportunities like this to the increasing amount of interest in Buddha Dhamma in the United Kingdom. This is a very interesting event because when I first came to live in the UK in 1977, there was there was a growing interest in britain especially there's a buddhist society in london and various tibetan zen groups the thai temple in wimbledon was already established and the english sangha trust especially wanted to establish a, a take their uh, information from the forest tradition of thailand which is represented by Lumpu Man who passed away many years ago I never he passed away long before I became a monk and Ajahn Chah and various other famous 
forest teacher is usually centered in the northeastern part of Thailand. Because this tradition has a history of practice of Bhattibhata, putting into practice, making the teachings of the Buddha work for them, so that monks training under the, these kind of teachings are not just memorizing Pali wise sayings of the Buddha, Pali sayings of the Buddha, and being able to recite them, but to actually put them into practice, because the Buddha's teachings are pointing very skillful directional signs, pointers, toward Dhamma, toward ultimate reality. And this, the, in the Thai first tradition, these great teachers like Lung Man, Lumpu Cha recognized this and kept this very much alive in Thailand through centuries, various forest teachers, but they were more on the uh, fringes of Thailand in the forests before Thailand really developed a, a modern uh, transportation system. There was no way to really understand them or know them very well. But when I arrived in Thailand as a layman, uh, Thailand was all was beginning to really take an interest in building uh, roads up through the Isan, around the Cambodian borders, Lao borders, Burma, and so forth. So suddenly, uh, the, in central Thailand, where so much of the Buddhist uh, was centered, began the people, lay people began to take a great interest in these forest ajans because they very much point to the liberation from suffering in a very direct way. Not theoretical, not metaphysical, but starting with the, the first uh, noble truth in the Buddhist first sermon, the the experience, the reality of suffering, which is common to every single human being that ever breathed and is ever breathing now. Suffering is a common, ordinary experience to be understood. So notice that this statement to understand is not to get rid of suffering. It's not about trying to destroy suffering so that there's no more suffering, but to understand it and to see the, the recognize for yourself through your own insight, through your own wisdom, the causes of suffering. So this is the very practical direct teaching of the Buddha that he expounded after his uh, enlightenment, according to our tradition, the Pali Theravada tradition. And when I became acquainted with Theravada Buddhism, I was very interested in why, you know, the, someone enlightened would would uh, make suffering a, a noble truth because according to my own background, my American conditioning, my generational uh, attitudes were based on suffering. There's something wrong if you're suffering and we've got to get rid of it. 
and, and see there's some kind of personal flaw, something that you need to, to uh, not understand but get rid of, destroy. So the American materialist attitude was very much about trying to destroy suffering or evil or uh, things you don't like by trying to uh, cling to what you do like, happiness, love, fairness, justice, freedom, all the fine ideals of Western uh, political philosophies. But suffering, according to the Buddha and the Aryasatsi, the Four Noble Truths, is, is to understand suffering. And this is where wisdom manifests in us. If we're just conditioned uh, out of cultural conditioning, social conditioning, religious conditioning to try to get rid of it or suppress it, destroy it or annihilate it, then, you know, the result is uh, increasing amount of suffering because nobody understands the suffering or its causes. And if you don't understand something, you just react in a habitual way to what you don't like by suppressing it or denying it. Where the Buddha teaching is to understand. So this English translation, to understand, means to stand under, to look at suffering, not as some, not externally so much, not to just look at other people's suffering, but to recognize the suffering that we create in our own conscious experience. So this takes a, this is what, where bhavana operates, or meditation. The very basis in uh, traditional Theravada Buddhism for, for life in general is dana sila, which is the, you know, establishing a, a good foundation in the world. So like dana, as we experience today in this uh, katina ceremony, this generosity uh, is to be uh, really appreciated, and and I hope that it gives all of you who have participated in this event great joy and happiness, for this is a very wonderful thing to be, to be generous, not to be selfish or stingy, but to share what you can with others. And that is an action that we can... Act on in in daily life generosity, which translates as dana into Pali, and sila, the uh, the precepts, moral precepts. So dana and sila, just for ordinary life, just for happiness in the world, or for a, a fairly successful life in the world and, and still deluded by the, the suffering of it, Dana Sila is a very uh, recommended teaching for everyone involved in, in daily life. So the Sangha here is established in Dana and Sila 
and and then we have this Vinaya, which is which was laid down by the Buddha before he passed away, and this uh, gives us a tool, a kind of convention to operate from that we all agree to. Because the Sangha here at Amaravati is very international. It's not just English monks and nuns or one nationality, but very international from Asia, from Europe, America. So it's at the time of the Buddha, I assume there were many monks who were from different tribes or different societies that joined the Sangha, each with their own customs and, and attitudes that were they acquired after their birth, according to the traditions of that particular tribe or conventional group, joining the Sangha, where you have to live together uh, as a as a group of people, uh, and that, then the Buddha established the Vinaya, which is an agreement when a monk or nun ordains, they have to agree to live within that restraint. So Vinaya is about restraining, about right speech, about right action, about right livelihood. So this uh, a traditional Vinaya convention comes from ancient India. So it's about it's like a, you can call it much of it just social etiquette or sangha etiquette or or moral precepts. But it's about action and speech. Then for each one of us as individuals, from whatever place we come from, whatever our birth, race, or gender might be, still must deal with our own karmic tendencies, the way we are as a person, way we, the, our emotional habits, our memories, our tendencies, our preferences, our peculiarities, our idiosyncrasies, which are going to be different. And in the Sangha, there's always many differences on a personal level. And we try to conform on the action and speech level by this respect for this traditional Vinaya. So the, the Bhavana then, because in this traditional form, Dana, then Sila, then Bhavana, meditation, So what is meditation? Because that's a common word that's used and quite popular in modern societies. So people are very interested in meditation now. And so in terms of Theravada Buddhism, meditation or bhavana is understanding suffering and its causes and in... Uh, realizing the end of suffering. Because in the Buddhist teaching, suffering is not ultimate reality. So there's a great difference between ultimate reality, which is Dhamma, and the noble truth of suffering. So noble truth is one thing, 
It's a fact that we can easily relate to just our sense of anxiety about the planet, about COVID, no, the COVID pandemic, about our family relationships, about our children, about our, uh, the political system that we're living under, about the climate change. There's so many potential things to worry about given, through, given to us through the media of the present time. So we hear about starvation in Afghanistan or Yemen or wars and, and pandemics and all kinds of revolutions uh, through the mass media. And so the information age is an age where encouraging this sense to worry about the future because there's plenty to worry about in terms of what might happen in the future. And there's all kinds of predictions, doomsday predictions. There's hope that we'll be smart enough, wise enough as human beings on the, on the planet Earth to solve all the planetary problems that, that we can imagine. There, that's a kind of hope or expectation. And there's kind of a despair. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, you just have to survive in some form or another. So these are all mental creations, whether it's fear, whether it's hope, whether it's despair, it's dukkha or suffering. And we begin to observe that through bhavana, right understanding, just by observing this sense of anxiety. That, that we, when we think about the future. Or you might be obsessed with the past, your past, what you've done, what you've said, your experiences of the past. You may feel guilt or regret or resentment or these kind of uh, emotions arise through remembering past events. Life has its own lessons that we learn from, so when we expect life to be fair and just and and uh, want the life to be something other than what we're experiencing, then this is suffering. Because the changing conditions that we're living with, the human forms that we identify with, all the thoughts, the memories, the images, uh, uh, the imagination for the future, just the senses that we use, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, are endlessly in this process, inexorable process of change. And so one of the basic and very profound teachings of the Buddha is all conditions are impermanent. Sape Sankara Anicca. This is a very basic teaching that I found extremely useful in my life as a Buddhist monk, uh, trying to understand suffering, trying to understand the suffering I create out of habit, out of ignorance. We can see, we can blame suffering on somebody else, on the family, on parents, on political systems, 
on the Chinese, on the Russians, on the Americans, or there's always something to blame that the ignorant individual always does. My suffering is due to the unfairness that I receive from life, or my suffering is due to uh, the injustices uh, of my parents. So we, we're very interested in our past and analyze our, our memories from the past and give them great importance. But that's not understanding suffering. It's not about blame. There's nobody to blame in terms of bhavana meditation, but it's this wisdom, this ability to wisely reflect on the suffering we create through our thinking, through our memories, through our attachments to views, our attachment to conceptions, opinions, our fears that we create through thinking, because the thinking process whether whatever language you think in, it's still an artificial conditioned phenomena. You know, so thinking is given great importance in modern life. We're educated, modern education is about thinking, about reason and logic, learning about history, learning about science, acquiring knowledge from outside, uh, and trying to accumulate knowledge. More and more knowledge, the, the more intelligent you are, the wiser you may be. So we say wisdom is something you acquire from reading wise sayings of sages of the past. Asian or, or Buddhist or Hindu uh, teaching. But the law of karma is worth studying because it's, it's investigating and understanding that what has a beginning has an ending. And it's through this that, that dukkha, the first noble truth, it has, is karma. It has a beginning, it has an ending. So in bhavana or meditation, we begin to investigate this, not just believe what the teacher says or the suttas say, but to find out for ourselves. So the Buddhist teaching is the thing that's so appealing about Buddhism at this time to the Western world where, you know, it's never had much effect for most of the time that Buddha, Buddhism has existed. Why it has suddenly become a source of great interest is because it is an, an invitation, an encouragement to investigate life, to find out suffering and not, you know, and understand it with wisdom rather than with particular religious or cultural biases or just blaming suffering on external causes. So the second noble truth is about the causes of suffering. So to understand suffering, you look inward, you're no longer looking outward, even if the external world is uh, causing a lot of discomfort or worry or anxiety. You know, we can blame the weather or there's earthquakes, there's fires, there's starvation, there's drought, 
floods, all kinds of things that, that we suffer from. But that's external suffering. We can't solve that. That's nature changing. Uh, the, you know, we can't just make it follow, you know, our own wishes and desires. So we, instead of blaming suffering on external sources, we look at what we actually feel. And so this experience of being a human being is about sensitivity. These are sensitive forms. Your whole body and your senses are about sensitivity, about feeling pleasure, pain. And so have seeing things that you like, seeing things you don't like, there's, there's this dualistic uh, pairing of opposites in the way we think. If you think good, there has to be bad. If you think heaven, there has to be hell. If you believe in God, there has to be a devil. Because these are, God is ultimately good, devil is ultimately bad. This is the limitation of the thinking process. Thinking is about sankharas, about qualities and conditions. It's not about, you can't think and describe Dhamma with words. The best we can do is call it ultimate reality. You know, so most religions are struggling trying to find out, you know, they each have their, their particular word for ultimate reality. And uh, in Buddhism, we have this word Dhamma, but you can't, when we try to reflect on Dhamma here and now, we say, Santidiko, Akaliko, Ehipasiko, Opanayiko, Bajatangvetila, Pawaniwi, which is, translates into English. Santidiko Dhamma is apparent here and now. So what is apparent here and now for each one of us that isn't just some personal uh, interpretation of this person? moment, what is apparent is consciousness. So each one of us is experiencing consciousness. That's apparent, you know, when you, when you stop looking outward or trying to think about it, what is apparent for each one of us at this very moment is that we're conscious. Santitiko, akaliko, timeless. You can't imagine timelessness. Try to imagine timelessness. And uh, this was an investigation I pursued um, diligently because I was very interested in akalika dhamma. What is, a, what is timelessness? Because everything, the, all conditioned phenomena is about time. You know, you're identified with time, with your age with the time of day, you know, just trying to create a schedule for this event involved the 
complete belief in time, where we all assemble at the same time, depart at the same time, or the robe is presented at a certain time, and then tomorrow it is that we plan for something in tomorrow, or the past is a memory. But timelessness, there's no, you know, you can only negate time, timeless, because you can't imagine timelessness. But the teaching of the Buddha is apparent here and now, so here and now is what we're actually experiencing. We're experiencing consciousness, it's apparent here and now. Then we look outward and we see the, the, the shrine, the Buddha Rupa, the beautiful flower decorations, uh, and so forth, looking at each other, the monks looking at the nuns, the shrines, and so the, the ditta or the mind goes outward to objects. And that, that's what we call the real world. Our reality is dependent upon the objects that we, we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. So this is the cause of suffering, this attachment, this way we're conditioned and blindly attached to things that are unstable, sankharas, from childhood, from early childhood, from infancy. We're encouraged to attach to things. And that's how we learn how to survive as infants. So then education, modern education, all cultural conditioning is about attachment to belief, belief in cultural values or certain tribal values or political values, religious values. We acquire these. These are acquired sankharas or conditions. That some are good, some are wise, some are not right, but you know, as an innocent child, we, we don't discriminate. We just accept what, what is given to us from our parents, from our peers, our society. But Bhavana is beginning to reflect on this, that every thought, when you, when you think, arises and ceases. When a thought ceases, What's left? When a thought arises, you're aware it's, it's a thought, and then it ceases. It can't, you can't sustain a thought unless you keep repeating it over and over, but eventually you have to give up. And you begin to notice conscious awareness without thought. So you're beginning to recognize the way things are, that, that behind all the thinking, all the emotions, all the identities, all the habit, mental habits and physical habits that we acquire after birth, there is this Dhamma reality here and now, conscious awareness. That's the way we, we realize Dhamma for ourselves, not through a description, not through a belief, but through the awakening or enlightened 
conscious awareness of the way it is at this moment. So this teaching <clears throat> leads to a third noble truth, which is to let the second noble truth, the, the encouragement is to let go. Let go of condition, but not destroy it, not deny it, not to believe it, but to just, it's like this. Whether it's true or false, right or wrong, good or bad, whatever the condition might be, you're aware it is what it is, because it can only be what it is in the moment. And you train yourself to let go. First, you have to remind yourself constantly to let go. But eventually, you begin to really understand letting go is a kind of relaxing your grip on life, on conditions, on worry, on habits, on fears, on hopes, on yourself as a separate person, on your age, on your gender, on your religious beliefs, political preferences, and so on. So you, it, I mean, it doesn't mean you don't have any political preferences or beliefs, but you're no longer attached to them. So there's wisdom. Letting go is like this. So it's in terms of English language, it's like relaxing. It's not holding a tight fist. Takes a lot of effort to sustain that effort. You know, as they relax your hand, you just, you're not have to get rid of the hand, you just relax it. So this, through this letting go, you become increasingly aware of silence, of the space between the thoughts, between the words, which is ever present here and now. And through that insight, you begin to cultivate that. That's the niroda, the third noble truth, the end of suffering. So suffering is something we learn from, not something we attach to or deny or blame, but see, our own individual suffering is what we, what we must learn from, the way we are. Whatever that might imply, you know, whether, you know, it's not a matter of some people are better than others and, and some people have more accumulated virtues and some people are hopeless. These are all thoughts that we create about ourselves or others. And they're not to be grasped. So we begin to find what they call inner peace. But it's really universal peace. Dhamma is a universal reality. It's not just some vague kind of metaphysical idea. But it's a word, like in Thai language, they use it for nature. While we translate everything is natural, is dhamma, tamata. They use the word dhamma and tamada and ordinary. So it's kind of, the word itself is 
very useful within the language itself. But in English, we don't have, we can't do that. We can't use the word Dhamma in the way uh, the Thais managed to use it. So we translate Dhamma as nature. But then for Western civilization, from my, speaking from my own experience, my background, nature always meant something external. You go out to commune with nature, you go out to the forest, to the mountains, to the, to the ocean. Nature is something you're not a part of. You don't feel a part of nature because nature is something out there. And that's a perception that I grew up with. And when I became a Buddhist monk living with Lung Pa Cha and Ubo, and, you know, I began and learning the Thai language, I began to see, you know, that actually we're all a part of nature. These are natural forms, these human forms. You know, they're, they're, they go by the law of nature. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing, birth and death. It's natural, and it's not self. So the, the Buddha emphasized anatta, or non-self. So when you try to imagine yourself as nobody, you're still somebody imagining you're nobody. So that doesn't work. We might try to be humble and think, I'm just a nobody or believe, you know, that I'm nobody, but that's, I'm still somebody imagining I'm nobody, whether I'm, I may be grandiose, megalomaniac, you know, thinking I'm the most powerful divine person on the planet. That's still an imagination, isn't it? That's not Dhamma, that's not reality. Whether you go to the one extreme to being the best or the absolute worst, there's still language, thoughts, concepts, perceptions that we grasp. And all these perceptions are subject to change. You know, they come, they go, they aren't kind of permanent with us. You know, they aren't kind of permanent possessions, but arise and cease according to other conditions. But what doesn't arise and cease for every single one of us is awareness, conscious awareness, here and now, Dhamma. So when we take refuge in Dhamma, I encourage you to reflect that this is not just a ceremony in, in Pali Buddhism, but it's much more profound than that. It's to be investigated. Ask yourself, what is Dhamma? What do we mean by that? And when I ask myself, what is Dhamma? I can't find a word for it. I can't show you what the Dhamma is as some kind of, uh, you know, describe it in detail or no matter how intelligent or my vocabulary might be excellent. There's no words for Dhamma but this apparent here and now, conscious awareness, timeless, santidiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, then ehipasiko is like come and see. See for yourself. Don't just believe the Buddha or a monk. 
A, he to be investigated, to be seen for oneself by Upanayaka Dhamma, looking inward, instead of seeking Dhamma, some external thing, object through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking, you actually know Dhamma is what you really are. So when you have these insights, then you feel compassion. You, you're no longer caught in your discriminatory habits of liking this person, disliking that person, uh, having prejudice, biases, views and opinions about yourself, about your family, about the society, about the world. But you have this sense of inner peace, a kind of joyful peacefulness that is natural. So when the Buddha was pointing the way to liberation, which is a, a way to describe the noble truths, there's four of them, so it's not all that complicated. The fourth noble truth is right understanding. Samaditi, right understanding, right standing under, just being the awareness, witnessing the changing conditions that that you you're experiencing in the present moment, the 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 conscious so the the thoughts that arise and cease, the emotions that are triggered by other conditions the bias, the prejudices, the preferences that, that we all have as individuals, we begin to see them in terms of kusala dhamma, akusala dhamma, apayakata, tama, the abhidhamma teachings, the dhammas in the Pali tradition, like waves on the sea, they, they arise and cease, but what is really the Dhamma is the stable reality of awareness. So I offer this uh, for reflection for this afternoon and I appreciate your generosity and kindness to come to Amravati. It's been a difficult year, I think, for everyone because of the pandemic. And uh, for monks, it's it's not so difficult because uh, we like quarantines and things like that. <laughs> we don't consider them punishments. So I give you all my blessings and best wishes. And my say, Sadhu, Sadhu.